Wednesday, December 19, 2018. This is Born the Battle, brought to you by the Department of Veterans Affairs. I am your host, Marine Corps veteran Timothy Lawson. Hope everybody is enjoying the holiday season, however you recognize and celebrate. There will be no podcast next Wednesday. Uh, hoping to put one out this Friday and then another one next Friday, but next Wednesday, the 26th, uh, most likely no podcast. I don't know. We'll see. I might, uh, I might get inspired to still put one out, but um, I'm lowering that expectation and, and, and hoping that I, maybe I over-deliver. But uh, right now, that's the schedule. Uh, the, I know the, the scheduling has been a little disjointed um, in the this month and last month, but um, I've been preparing for uh, a really exciting rollout next year. 2019 is going to hopefully see a podcast network coming from VA, um, one that I hope to uh, to lead the efforts on and, and be a main voice in. But going to bring in um, a lot more a lot more characters from inside VA from the other administrations and really focus on some of the things that uh, VA offers through their benefits, health, uh, what NCA does in their efforts, learn more about veterans and the way to use our benefits and so much more. Really excited to roll that out. Um, and that's going to start with a new segment, a new podcast, a new episode um, from NCA focusing on the Veterans Legacy Program uh, once a week, probably on Fridays. That's going to start happening in January. More on that as we get close to the end of the year. Quick reminder, if you did not know, the Secretary has his own Twitter and Instagram account. Secretary Wilkie has his own Twitter and Instagram account. He is at SEC Wilkie on both of those platforms. If you're interested in following him in, uh, in the things that he is doing out in the veteran community, out in VA, uh, you can follow him on those two platforms and uh, keep up with uh, with his messaging, with his events that he uh, he often uh, tweets when he visits a medical center, stuff like that. So uh, follow him there. S-E-C Wilkie is his handle on both Twitter and Instagram. This week's interview is with Nicholas Armstrong, an Army veteran who is currently the Senior Director on Research and Policy up at IVMF, the Institute for Veterans and Military Families. We've already spoken to a couple people from uh, that, Jim McDonough, Mike Haney, two people that have already spoken to us from IVMF. This week, we have Nicholas Armstrong. He's going to talk to us about his time in the Army, his transition out, how he got involved with IVMF, and most importantly, some research that they did at IVMF on veterans transitioning and how they discover and pursue benefits. That's a really interesting conversation uh, and probably in uh, a, a very unique perspective that uh, that Nick brings to that conversation. Enjoy. I served in Vietnam. I served in World War II. I served in Afghanistan. And VA serves us all. No matter when you served. No matter if you saw combat or not. There are benefits for veterans of every generation. See what VA can do for you. To learn what benefits you may be eligible for, visit www.va.gov. That's www.va.gov. Let's do it. Uh, Nicholas Armstrong from the from IVMF, sir. Thank you so much for joining me here on Born the Battle. Thanks, Tim. It's uh, it's great to be here. Great to join you. So, Nick, we start we start each of these each of these interviews with the same thing. The one thing that all of us veterans have in common, and that's the the decision to join the United States military. Bring us back to that day for you. 
Sure. Um, it really goes back um, to uh, my uh, my teenage years. My uh, it really it goes back to uh, to my grandfather uh, on my mother's side, um, who served in World War II. Um, big big family on that side. Um, he uh, he served in the Norm- Normandy campaign and. You know, I was, um, you know, as we were growing up, my my cousins and I would, you know, kind of tell us little bits and pieces of his uh, his time in service. He was a he was an infantryman, nineteen uh, year old squad leader. Um, I think he landed on day two uh, of uh, after D Day. Um, made his way over to uh, the Battle of Saint Malo and fought there. Um, and actually, so there's. Um, there's a picture I have now that's that's framed um, that is uh, an old um, 1945 issue of the Christian Science Monitor, and in the center of it is a is a picture of him um, with his company commander. Uh, and the whole story goes he he, he helped uh, translate the surrender at Saint Malo. Um, is he's is, his name is Otto by um, and he's. Uh, his father uh, came over from Germany, spoke fluent German, um, and so he, he he tells the stories, you know, um, of uh, kind of sitting there and, um, you know, just the uh, he always, he was called it the the smugness of the the Nazi regimental commander smoking his cigar and just kind of tells the whole this whole story about him uh, being a part of that and then to have that um, that moment sort of documented in. In, in time uh, of him sort of walking the, the, the Nazi regimental commander um, uh, after the surrender uh, coming out of the, the fortress there. Um, you know, of course, as, as little kids growing up, we, we, we saw him as just this, this legend and icon. And so that was really the, the spark or the, the motive to, to really uh, want to sort of follow in those footsteps and serve. And then sort of growing up a little bit later, as I went into high school, you know, started looking at, at colleges and, and sort of considering military service um, from that, you know, started looking at um, uh, West Point and the, and the, um, as a potential option of, you know, getting a degree and serving at the same time. And, you know, he, he of course, uh, you know, told us stories of of uh, the West Pointers he, uh, he served with and uh, of course, reinforced that, and so that was really sort of what what drove me uh, to 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 see a way to both serve and lead and get a college education at the same time. Yeah. So, um, how long? So that was two thousand, right? That you you graduated. Yep. From? Yep. So then, how how long? How many years of service did you have? So I served for seven on active duty, um, all with the Tenth Mountain, surprisingly. Um, Served uh, initially uh, a deployment in the Balkans. Was actually um, in Bosnia as part of an advanced party on 9/11. Um, our, our main body of our uh, infantry unit was uh, uh, scheduled to actually uh, ship out to Bosnia on 9/11, uh, but that was delayed. Um, uh, so served served seven months there, um, and then came back uh, refit. Uh, moved around into a different uh, platoon leader XO role, um, and um, you know prepped the unit to uh, head to Afghanistan. In um, route to Afghanistan, was pulled up uh, to be uh, to serve as a general's aide, 
and then eventually made it to Afghanistan, um, you know, serving with uh, our assistant division commander in 10th Mountain. Um, got to see a lot of Afghanistan uh, in that time, and um, came back, uh, served another year uh, as a sort of a second aid speechwriter, special assistant to uh, General Austin, who was the commanding general. Uh, then went back down to um, Sister Infantry Battalion uh, in 1st Brigade, 10th Mountain, uh, and uh, was a battalion fire support officer for a year in Baghdad, um, and uh, right around the 2005-2006 mark. And then uh, came back, served a little bit longer, but then uh, decided to uh, transition out, um, head to grad school. Um, and uh, little, that, little that I know, I thought I'd be at Syracuse University for a, a year or so, and uh, you know, uh, eleven years later, here I am. Here you are. Uh, tell me, tell me about a great friend, or, or tell, me, tell me about a close friend or a great leader that you had while you were in the military. You can choose either one, but tell me about that person. Uh, I had a lot of great leaders. Um, you know, as I mentioned, uh, worked for worked for several. Um, uh, folks who, who made it to general officer, a lot of great leaders. Um, uh, I would say probably the, the ones, there were probably two NCOs that had the most, uh, uh, I would say, um, um, positive impact on me as a leader. Um, uh, one would be, uh, the one in particular would be, uh, uh, Sergeant First Class, uh, Brown, who was, uh, who was basically my, uh, he was our chief of firing battery when I was a, a lieutenant XO. Um, really, I think you know taught me how to how to not be a messed up lieutenant, you know, um, and um, you know how to how to take care of troops and how to how to be the leader that they need to be. Um, uh, just a lot of a lot of great experiences in, in sort of leading troops and um, you know planning um, you know planning uh, field problems, um, deploying units to GRTC. Um, you know, just we went through a lot together, and I, I think he has uh, uh, had probably the greatest impact on me of uh, of just uh, emulating what it what it means to be of uh, being a leader. And you know, is uh, um, you know loves his troops, but have but you know bears the responsibility of of uh, of, of what it takes to um, to be an officer. Sure. Uh, you know, it's something I like to talk to um, talk to veterans about, especially ones that served uh, during 2001. Um, you know, uh, you know, September 11, 2001 was a was a, such a huge turning point in, in both our military and in, in our way of lives. Can you tell me about uh, from your perspective where you were in the military, um, just the the stark difference that you saw or any just your your perspective on September 10, 2001 and September 12, 2001, just how different those two days were? Sure. I, I think, there, you know, for those of us who were especially commissioned uh, prior to 9-11, um, you know, we weren't I think the the expectation, I think. Um, for many who who had signed up of, in terms of what they would see and experience was very different. Um, I think I, you know, um, you know, commissioned in 2000. I remember um, General Shinseki spoke at our um, at our graduation dinner. Um, it, it was it was almost it was look, thinking back on it. It was um, you know. 
he had said in the speech, like, you, you guys are entering a, a very uncertain time, um, you know, like, like every generation before you, like, it was almost like, get ready, something's going to happen in your careers and you should be prepared for it, even though the expectation of the, at the time in the, in the late 90s was maybe we would, if you're lucky, you might get a deployment to, you know, Bosnia or Kosovo. Right. Um, and, and sure enough, you know, you know, I went to the 10th Mountain Division because it was a great unit and most likely to deploy. Um, and, um, you know, we were slated for that. Um, but I think 9-11 really, uh, you know, the world shifted, um, like literally, um, and expectations um, for for what that would mean um, for us. I, I don't even think, uh, I think we all knew that we would... Uh, at some point, at some point, be be called to um, um, to serve in Afghanistan, which in, and that certainly happened. Um, I don't think we quite understood uh, what that would mean, though, for uh, a, pen- a potential, you know, military career. Um, uh, you know, t- you know t- today, sitting at you know um, seventeen years now. Um, yeah. Um, and and what that would mean for uh, for the force and and um, you know the, like what that would mean for um, for uh, for a career and a family uh, to make that type of commitment. Um, I don't think we were quite ready for that. Sure. I mean, so seven years active duty, spent three years deployed to Iraq, Afghanistan, and Bosnia, uh, mm-hmm. received two bronze stars, combat action badge, among other accommodations. Uh, what ultimately uh, prompts your, your decision to get out then? Uh, really, it was, um, you know, I loved the Army, loved who I uh, got to work with. People were great in the mission. Um, there's nothing quite like it, um, but, you know, it was it was, it was was time from um, just from a uh, perspective at, at, at home and the, the toll it was taking. Um, and, uh, you know, it was just, just worn out. Um, so it needed a, needed a break. Um, but, you know, sort of thinking through that transition, um, had an engineering background, wasn't really, uh, uh, super motivated to, to go into the engineering field necessarily. still felt like a, um, you know, needed to find some some other outlet to continue to serve, and um, you know, was fortunate to find a a great grad program here at Syracuse, uh, just down an hour down the down the road from from Fort Drum. Um, so I uh, wanted to enter grad school and uh, pursue a master's degree in in, in public policy and administration. Um, so so that was my 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 first. Um, first you know sort of decision point like in in, in transition of like uh, as i figure figure out what i'm going to do in it for the next stage of life um uh, maybe go back to grad school and sort of sort through sort sort through it um so in the middle of that was was very fortunate to hook up with uh, uh some some really high quality faculty here um and a, a research center initially focused in in national security and counterterrorism, so that seemed like a great opportunity to sort of continue my focus um, in the security field and work for them while I was pursuing my grad degree and just there at the right time. And you know, as as this institute was about to to, to grow, um, 
um, moved into a, a full-time research role with them and decided to keep, keep going to school. Uh, never in my, uh, uh, never in the cards did I think, uh, uh, pursuing a, a doctoral degree was 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 there, but uh, with uh, some great mentors here and just the the, the great environment that's here at, at Syracuse was it was uh, had the fortune to, to keep to keep going to school while working. Um, and then uh, six years with them, you know, in the midst of that, um, my now current boss, uh, who's an Air Force officer. Um, former Air Force officer and business school professor, um, started a, uh, a little boot camp for, for veterans with, with disabilities in the mid-2000s here. And that that one little program that was supposed to be his uh, summer hobby, um, you know, grew and uh, he had uh, more universities coming to to us to, to think of ways that they could deliver the same program and started to build a consortium and then one program turned into another program, and you know, fast forward to 2011, uh, they created an institute for vets and military families here at Syracuse. Um, and as they were forming this institute around the some of these programs that they were delivering for for veterans and and their families, uh, you know, I hooked up with Mike and wrote a few papers together uh, along the way, and. Um, as they were looking to 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 grow the institute, came on and and, and joined the team in 2014 uh, to help build out the research side of the institute. Um, so the institute's uh, definitely not a typical institute that you'd find in a higher ed campus um, that usually starts with the research mission. We actually did it backwards, but I think uh, to our benefit uh, in in the sense of of um, the, the the broader vision behind it is that the institute um, uh, the, the vision was really around helping to leverage all of the all the talent and the human capital uh, that sits on a university campus in a way that can it sort of advance the lives of uh, veterans, transitioning service members, and their families. Um, so we are a little we are unique in that sense in uh, in that we. We deliver uh, training and education opportunities in, in different areas for for the military community, and then we pair that up with uh, research that is focused on that, and also um, measurement and program evaluation, um, so that it's aligned. Pick one or two moments, or 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 um, I don't know what you call it, like studies or you know projects you put on that you took upon in this research that uh, really had an impact there at IAVMF or something that really was sort of breakthrough uh, for, for veterans and, and for that, for those efforts. Sure. Uh, I mean, there are, there are several, but the one that we always kind of go back to um, was a study that we did uh, in 2014 through a, a Google grant um, that was originally intended to take a look at how, uh, veterans are transitioning into higher education. You know, like how are they fitting in on campuses? Like what are they, what are they facing in terms of both? You know, like what's working, what's not? What's wh- what are their successes? What are the barriers that they see to like both entering higher education and completing their degrees? And so we um, we had we we launched a big survey um, with a, with a bunch of partners, including VA, 
to distribute it to uh, across the, in the Student Veterans of America to distribute it across uh, across the country and had a had a turnout of over 8,500 um, participate in the study. But what we did is we took a bigger picture uh, view, um, you know, kind of th- framing it from the view of transition, not just transition to higher education, but transition generally. Um, and the, one of the, even though I mean, we asked a battery of questions, almost a hundred questions and had a great turnout even despite that. But there was one question that I really, I think helped inform the direction of the Institute and how we would, uh, frame and, um, design our programs going forward. And what, what we asked, we asked folks based sort of on, on common knowledge of what we kind of tend to hear anecdotally what are the various challenges that veterans uh, face in transition and, and gave them this, this laundry list of, uh, of different potential barriers and asked them, you know, what, so rank order what you uh, experience as your, your top um, transition challenges um, and expecting that employment would be at the top of the list. Um, employment was actually number two, but, um, sort of like navigating uh, all the benefits and services that are available to them was the top-sided challenge in that. Um, and from that, I think it really helped us um, and what, think. Sorry, I was saying, in that, where, where does that start? Like, do they, does that start um, as far back as the TAPS class that they took getting out of the military? Is that something they start realizing a year out? Like, when... When do you do you have data on that on when when the average veteran is finding it to be most challenging to navigate benefits? So from that study, uh, we didn't uh, look at. We weren't quite sure what we what to even expect. And so you know, obviously that'd be a, a great a great way to to slice that to understand. Okay, at what point did you um, were you, uh, um, you know, experiencing the greatest? Uh, difficulty in sort of uh, navigating and finding finding uh, information on all these, but because I can imagine that. Yeah. Sorry, I don't mean to interrupt, but I I, I can yeah. imagine that um, a lot of the cases are similar are are of veterans that when as they're transitioning out don't think about the benefits that they'll need. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, so when they finally, when they finally come to a point where they, where the, you know, a lot of veterans getting out think like, oh, like there's other people that need it more than I do, or, um, or I'm not, you know, I don't trust the VA. I'm not going to even bother trying to apply for benefits yeah. or whatever it may be. And then, yeah. you know, one to five years down the road, they realize, oh man, I really should, you know, get yeah. this looked into. And I think they're so disconnected from, um, from, from that mindset that I think it's difficult to go. And it, it, I mean, benefits, especially with VA and outside of VA, it's, it, there's, yeah. it's intimidating, um, yep. to navigate it all. And the further you are away from your military mindset and fit further away from those resources that are so readily available to you, I think the more difficult it is. So I'd be really interested to hear when, at what point the average veteran is, is trying, is starting to, uh, attempt to navigate their benefits. I, th- I think all of that is true, and you know, obviously, it's probably unique to the individual. But you know, certainly, we uh, we 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 think of this too. I mean, I I mean, I I transitioned and really didn't start thinking about, like you said, um, okay, I've got terminal leave coming up. I'll I'll figure it out then. You know, give me my paperwork. Um, you know, like let's uh, let's let's get this done, and then I'll start job hunting. Um, and that was 2007. Uh, like a lot has gone into 
you know, improving um, the the tap um, the, the tap program especially. But now you're seeing more um, uh, more uh, programs that are that are popping up that recognize the fact that you know you know both operational constraints on the DOD of uh, you know like they they still have a mission um, and you know it's, it's hard to let soldiers go. Um, but at the at the same point, you know, we're just not we're not the best informed consumers of all that is out there. Um, you know, as we're you know in that three to six month window, um, and so I think the the nonprofit and private sector space is starting to recognize that, and you know, designing programs that help folks understand, like get get better informed about what is available to them. Uh, you know, and in position opportunities um, in employment, for example, like our our, our program on our opportunities, a uh, career skills program under the Skill Bridge Authority, um, operating on 18 military installations now. Um, that you know is is essentially the a an extended complement of TAP. So it, only folks who've completed the TAP, um, the TAP, the mandatory TAP. Uh, pro, uh, program can then elect to go into this industry-specific uh, skills training program, and um, you know receive additional instruction on on specific career fields, industries, um, obtain certifications, um, and then get linked linked direct to uh, employers that are are looking to interview uh, veterans in in specific fields. So starting to build those pipelines and, and sort of both both help on the on inf- on the on the supply side of of in helping to inform those that are in transition about what's available and, and prepare them, but also connecting them to the demand side uh, and ease that navigation um, for employment as one example. But to but to your point too on the on the back end after folks have taken the uniform off and you know they they, they transition back to either their hometown, um, in and around the installation that they separated from or, or, or pursue some other new opportunity either for, for, uh, for a job, for a new job or, or school. Um, it can be daunting understanding like who's who in a new community and who should I turn to for what, um, and navigating those local services is also a challenge. And, you know, that, um, the same thing, you know, informs the community-based work that we've been involved in with um, um, an initiative called America Serves, um, which um, has been uh, a uh, an effort that we've launched in partnership with communities that are looking to uh, build uh, net coordinated networks of services and care. Um, to do do so in a way that helps ease that navigation, um, so that uh, organizations can um, make trusted referrals between between themselves. So if a, if a veteran uh, in a community you know walks into uh, one provider but exhibits needs for something else, like say I need a job and financial assistance, uh, but that uh, employment provider can't provide uh, financial assistance. These networks allow for that um, trusted referral um, between those organizations to help ease that navigation challenge. Yeah, um, you know, so we've 
uh, you're actually third in a series of uh, interviews we've done with with IVMF staff. We've talked to uh, to Mike Haney and Jim McDonough. Um, so yeah. w- you know the, the audience is is sort of familiar with um, a lot of the co- like some of the concepts and the efforts at IVMF. But I think something that maybe has, hasn't really been uh, brought up, and I wonder if maybe you can shed light on this, is um, like when you're especially because you're taking you're doing a lot of the research. Well, like when you when you when you do this research and you and you get this data, like who are you sharing that with? Like like is it uh, like how is that both. Um, um, benefiting your efforts there at IVMF, and then also like where are you bringing that outside of the university to like share with like the veteran community or other industries? Like who who's yeah. who's getting that data to then benefit the veteran and their families? So I think one of the unique um, unique things about what we do, partly, I mean, to your point, in the sense that we're trying our we're trying to link research and evaluation with the programs we deliver. So there is that synergy in the sense that. You know, because we've we have folks who are actually delivering programs on the ground, um, we've got that uh, direct access to sort of what are the leading challenges or issues and, and the types of research questions that we should be asking, versus just sitting up uh, you know in a in a an academic bubble of um, you know, doing doing research for the sake of research. Um, so I think that's one benefit. And then we also have the ability to help inform, you know, back to the point around this navigation challenge of, of leveraging the research we do and, and the research of others, um, to help inform the work that we do, um, and, you know, make sure it's, uh, it's, uh, uh, it's like, it's, it's in line with best practice, et cetera. Um, but also in the sense that because we work with, we, while we sit at a uh, sit on a university campus, you know we're very much uh, like a nonprofit in the sense that we deliver these programs, are you know working alongside other providers and communities. So there's a nonprofit audience, there's a philanthropic audience, there's certainly an industry audience, um, with especially around a lot of the employment work that we do and the research that we do with that. Uh, and then there's also a policy audience. I mean, you know, for example, we uh, wrapped up a an independent assessment of the Veterans Employment Initiative that was um, launched through an executive order in 2009 by President Obama. Um, so worked with uh, the Office of Personnel Management to review all the hiring retention uh, data of veterans over the last uh, you know seven eight years. Did a survey with them, and you know so so each each study we do. The, the audiences tend to be a little bit different, the primary audiences, but, you know, we also um, you know, so work to try to um, uh, translate the work, uh, the research itself in ways that are meaningful or engaging to different audiences. So, so usually with, the, with each study, we'll have some longer technical report, but uh, also uh, pull, pull out, you know, infographics and executive summaries for different audiences as a way to uh, help make what we do relevant and actionable um, versus just uh, sitting up on a, uh, on a shelf or on a website somewhere that helps. Yeah. What, what do you personally enjoy, enjoy about the work? What do you, what, how do you, uh, what sort of fulfillment do you get out of it? Um, Well, one, one is to see the, the work actually, you know, you know, folks engaging with, with the work that we do. 
um, that to me is, is fulfilling in the sense of, you know, like, well, well, I enjoy doing research, you know, like doing research in ways that help sort of inform and, you know, improve, um, uh, the human condition, especially for like generally speaking, but, you know, like are actually helping to in, helping, um, folks serve our community better. Um, that to me is, is what makes us, uh, all worth it. Um, and of course my, I can't say enough about, um, the, the quality of people we work with day in, day out. The team that I have is exceptional. Um, you know, a lot of, um, bright folks and students as well that, uh, sit on this campus and are engaged in our work. Um, you know, there's, it's a, it's a really neat place here and the, the, the community and culture that we've created here at the, at the university and how folks in, are, are, are really truly engaged around the work and our mission. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's really something. Yeah, absolutely. Tell me about a, um, tell me about a skill sets or an experience that you had while you're in the military that you feel is contributing to your success today. Oh gosh. Um, you know, I think there's, um, the, uh, the military, you know, there, we always, well, I mean, we always call ourselves, uh, our, uh, our boss is an entrepreneurship professor and, uh, we like to think of our organization, even though we've, we've grown up quite a bit over the last several years, but we like to think of ourselves as an entrepreneurial, um, uh, shop. And I think a lot of that draws back to the fact that, um, you know, service members, you know, are, you know, constantly thrown, uh, with challenges, um, you know, especially, especially as leaders, you, you like you're, you're thrown a mission, you may not have everything you need for it. Um, um, or have all the, all the, like sort of the perfect, uh, set of information. Um, uh, but you, you kind of figure it out and, um, and I think taking that that attitude and sort of mentality has been one that I think has served us well as an organization of of, of being able to sort of uh, find opportunity and, and create value in the face of uh, uh, constrained resources, um, especially in a in, in a in a higher education setting where um, you know what we do is a little atypical from uh, you know a, a typical. Um, higher education perspective, um, in terms of delivering services like we do. Um, so that's, that's one, I think a lot of, a lot of leadership, uh, just lessons learned and from, from those who I've worked with, uh, as well, it's been helpful, um, you know, being able to manage in all directions, particularly up and across, you know, being able to think and understand, uh, what's going on, the bigger picture, a couple levels up and being able to, to speak to that, but also communicate it uh, across and, and down and, 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 and reinforce um, the why, the why we're doing what we do, um, especially when it comes to, to research, you know, and being able to connect it and uh, connect it to uh, like how, how folks are, you know, addressing real world problems um, and, uh, and, and trying to do uh, do things better day in day out and improve what they do and how they serve vets is is has been another tell me about a uh tell me about a veteran or a veteran organization that you're familiar with other than i v m f that has you excited about what they're doing right now oh there are so many um you know i i 
can't help but to to draw back to my days and uh, you know volunteering with uh, Team Red, White, and Blue. Sure, um, it's a fantastic organization. Uh, they've uh, uh, you know in terms of being able to be an organization that uh, you know helps helps folks connect with their community. I think those uh, those types of organizations, uh, Travis Manning Foundation, is another one. Uh, Team Rubicon, those that are really um, tapping into uh, the civic mindedness uh, and um, um, you know, the, the the public service motivation that that uh, veterans have, and being able to uh, leverage that as an asset in ways that help sort of bridge the civ mill divide, I think, is huge. Um, so a lot of great organizations that have popped up over the last, you know, five to 10 years that, um, are, are really doing, um, important work. Uh, and I think will be, um, be huge for, for the community and for the country going forward and for the next decade, several decades for sure. Absolutely. And one thing that I, one thing I really appreciate about, uh, organizations like, uh, you know, Mission Continues, Team 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 yep. Rubicon, yep. Team Red, White, and Blue yep. is they like their mission isn't like their, their mission isn't inherently veteran, right? Like, there's nothing like right. it's their mission is to support a, support their community and support uh, others, but they're finding ways to to serve veterans through that mission. I think that's what makes them really unique, right? So, Nick, uh, I, I appreciate your time. I appreciate all your, your insights on IVMF, your military service, what's going on over there at Syracuse. Is there anything that, uh, about your research, uh, about the efforts at IVMF that we haven't touched on yet today that you were hoping to, to, to talk about? Hmm. No, I think, I think we covered it pretty well. A lot of, a lot of exciting new work coming, uh, coming out for us over the, over the next year. You know, really trying to take a, a bigger picture look at how can we help support, you know, broader enterprise, sort of not just uh, um, whole of government, but whole of the nation approaches uh, to um, to supporting and delivering services and care, um, you know, inclusive of, of the VA, but also other federal agencies, state, state and local governments, what they deliver and, you know, sort of driving toward a um, you know, holistic approaches would be one. Um, really, we're also you know focused on on looking at uh, veteran entrepreneurship, in particular. Um, you know, in, in looking at you know how folks are accessing different resources resources as they're sort of um, going through their journey, their entrepreneurial journeys, either from from just starting out and starting to think about starting a business versus those that have established businesses and what, what works for them in terms of uh, uh, helping them uh, support, sustain, and grow their businesses um, is another one. Um, and then looking at uh, from, uh, from an employment perspective of, you know, there's been a lot of focus over the last decade or so on the employment situation uh, you know, the unemployment is at a record low now, but, you know, we're, you know, really focused on, you know, how can we support, uh, veterans, you know, not just gaining that first job and, and getting a good fit right out of the, uh, right out of the military, but how can we design, um, you know, programs that support folks, career growth, uh, and employability, 
you know, especially given the rapid change in the, in the, uh, in the, in the workplace today and all the technological advances and how that's going to shape the, the workforce of the future. How are we setting folks up, not just for that first job, but to be competitive in a workplace over the next, over their, over really over their career. Yeah. Wonderful. Nick, I, I really do appreciate your time. Appreciate all your insight. Thank you uh, for all the work you're doing at IVMF. And most of all, sir, thank you for your service to our country. Oh, thanks, Tim. It's a pleasure. Uh, glad to join you today. My grandfather served in World War II. Spending time with him were the best memories of my life. I became a physician at VA because of my grandfather, so I can help others like him. I can't imagine working with better doctors or a more dedicated staff. I'm fulfilling my life's mission with the help of my team and thanks to these veterans. I'm proud to be a doctor at VA. I'm proud to honor my grandfather every day. Big thanks to Nick for joining Search me and VA for uh, IVMF continuing to, to bring forward uh, really great veterans that are doing amazing things up there with that research, with that initiative um, at Syracuse University. We actually have, uh, we already have another one on the on the calendar. Uh, I believe in January, I'm going to be talking to another member from IVMF. So um, even more perspective and insight coming from that organization. IVMF.syracuse.edu is where you can go if you want to learn more about the institution and about that initiative up at Syracuse. This week's Medal of Honor citation reading is for Daniel Inouye, Services of the United States Army, Division, Company E, 442nd Regimental Combat Team, Conflict, World War II, Year of Honor is 1945. Citation reads, For conspicuous gallantry and intrepidity at the risk of his life above and beyond the call of duty, 2nd Lieutenant Daniel K. Anoy distinguished himself by extraordinary heroism in action on 21 April 1945 in the vicinity of San Terenzo, Italy. While attacking a defended ridge guarding an important road junction, 2nd Lieutenant Inouye skillfully directed his platoon through a hail of automatic weapon and small arms fire and a swift enveloping movement that resulted in the capture of an artillery and mortar post and brought his men to within 40 yards of the hostile force. Emplaced in bunkers and rock formations, the enemy halted the advance with crossfire from three machine guns. With complete disregard for his personal safety, 2nd Lieutenant Inouye crawled up the treacherous slope to within five yards of the nearest machine gun and hurled two grenades, destroying the emplacement. Before the enemy could retaliate, he stood up and neutralized a second machine gun nest. Although wounded by a sniper's bullet, he continued to engage other hostile positions at close range until an exploding grenade shattered his right arm. Despite the intense pain, he refused evacuation and continued to direct his platoon until enemy resistance was broken and his men were again deployed in defensive positions. In the attack, 25 enemy soldiers were killed and 8 others captured. By his gallant, aggressive tactics and by his indomitable leadership, 2nd Lieutenant Inouye enabled his platoon to advance through formidable resistance and was instrumental in the capture of the ridge. Second Lieutenant Inouye's extraordinary heroism and devotion to duty are in keeping with the highest traditions of the military service and great credit on him, his unit, and the United States Army. We honor his service.
That wraps up episode 124. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. I know there's a lot of options out there for entertainment, so I do appreciate you spending your time listening to these amazing veteran stories and the insight that they bring on the veteran community. Be sure to follow us on social media at DEPT Vet Affairs on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook.com slash Veterans Affairs. Please take a moment to leave a rating and review in your podcatcher of choice, whether that's Google Play, iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher Radio. We'll be back on Friday with a conversation with someone from the Federal Trade Commission on Operation Donate with Honor. Until then, I'm Timothy Lawson, signing off. <music>